Morning, everyone. We are going to be taking communion together as a family. Uh, So that means if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, if you follow him, uh, we would invite you to partake with us. Uh, If you didn't grab one of these on the way in, could you lift up your hand really quick? Our ushers would love to get you one. Uh, They'll be passing them out. So if you did not get one of these communion elements, just slip up your hand really quick, and they will make sure that they get you one. Uh, one other thing really quick, I'm not going to be as animated as I have been in, in the past. My uh, knee is in lots of, of pain, just really strange. I woke up on Friday morning with lots of interesting pain. So uh, wrestling through that, so I will be less animated than normal. I would love for you if you could turn in your Bible to 1 Peter 3. We're going to get there in a little bit. But before we do that, I just want to make a simple statement. The Green Bay Packers are the greatest football team in the history of the NFL. I don't, I feel like I just have one supporter. I don't know, are there, is there anyone else? Does anyone want to disagree with me? Does anyone want to say that that is not in fact the greatest football franchise in NFL history? Who, Who wants to debate? I'm ready to go, so are you? Nobody wants to really debate me on this. So I see that you're really diehard Philadelphia Eagles fans. I mean, you are ready to go toe-to-toe with me over the Green Bay Packers. Well, I am, um, let me just share with you about the Green Bay Packers because it is pretty amazing. What makes them the greatest football team in the history of the NFL? They have uh, 13 championships, 13 championships in their 100 and three-year history. They were formed in 1919, and they joined the NFL in 1920, and they have won 13 championships uh, since they started. Now, that doesn't mean Super Bowls. Uh, Other teams may have won more Super Bowls, but the Packers have won more championships than any other team in history. Um, They actually have 21 Hall of Famers, which is second only to the Chicago Bears, which is a sore spot for me. They have a lot of Hall of Famers, um, but what stands out also about the Green Bay Packers is there have only been two coaches in NFL history that have won back-to-back-to-back national championships. Only two coaches have ever won it three times in a row. Both of them coached for the Green Bay Packers. Hmm. One of them was Vince Lombardi, who is uh, iconic. Vince Lombardi is so iconic that his name is associated with winning, so much so that when they found the trophy to award the best team in the NFL for a certain year. They call it the Lombardi Trophy, right? Vince Lombardi, and he set the standard of what winning was. The Green Bay Packers is an organization that is full of class and dignity. They will not be uh, tarnished. They will not allow people to tarnish them. That's why they let Brett Favre go when he was wishy-washy about whether he was going to retire or not. I could go into a whole tirade on that, but I'm going to refrain. No single man has meant more to uh, football than Vince Lombardi, in my opinion. Uh, The fan base of the Green Bay Packers is second to none. Uh, They have sold out every single game, every single game since 1960. Every game, there's not a single seat. And there are 86,000 people currently on the wait list for season tickets. Do you know how long that they're going to be waiting? almost a 1,000 years to get a a season ticket. That's how long that they have to wait, but still, people put their names on the wait list every single year for the hope that they would one day get a season ticket to the Green Bay Packers. Uh, But what stands out to me the most about the Green Bay Packers is that they are the only team in all of sports that is publicly owned. Uh, A long time ago, back in the early history, they were about to go bankrupt. So in in order to save the franchise, they actually sold shares to businessmen. And those businessmen took them, bought them, and the Green Bay Packers became a publicly owned business. It is the only publicly owned not-for-profit sports team in all of history. And it is fascinating. There are 380,000 shareholders of the Green Bay Packers. The team does not answer to an egotistical billionaire, but to the fan base, the people of the city. It is the only team that is in the small city. There are only 100,000 people in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and yet the team stays there. 
there are so many reasons why the Green Bay Packers are the greatest football team in all of history. Do I have you convinced? <laughs> I'm probably not going to convince you. You guys will probably still be Philadelphia Eagles fans even after this, or uh, Lord help you if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. But I, I don't assume that I can convince all of you to become a Green Bay Packers fan. Maybe I've convinced a few of you, hopefully I have, but, or not. But the issue behind all of it is, is we can have this freedom of discussion. We can disagree, we can debate over this. It's not that big of a deal. Whether or not I like the Green Bay Packers or the Eagles or the Chiefs or the Miami Dolphins, it does not matter. It's a personal preference for me. And it's a personal preference for you. And we can go toe to toe, we can disagree and debate it day upon day upon day, but it's not gonna matter in the grand scheme of things, right? But what happens when we actually start to debate and disagree on more important topics? when disagreement centers around things that are a lot more close to home or they matter a whole lot more in our lives. For example, maybe some of you have driven past a sign like I have that says something like this. In this house, we believe that black lives matter. Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. We are all immigrants. Diversity makes us stronger. Now, some Christians may read that sign and say, amen, this is exactly what I believe. They grieve racial injustice. They believe in diversity. They know that women are equal to men, and they've been taught that affirming gay relationships, trans identities, and pro-choice positions comes part and parcel with many of these other things. So they are quick to shout, amen. There are other Christians that will drive by and see a sign like this, and they will say, foobar. No way, this is not resonating with me. They believe that the Bible rejects things like this or some of the tenets that are on that sign. So they swing a hammer and they try to flatten that sign. Maybe they don't actually take a literal hammer to go do that, please don't do that. Uh, go flatten somebody else's sign. But they try to do that in their mind. Ment mentally, they're gonna smash it down because they think that if all of these ideas stand together, they must all be wrong. Then there are others that hold a mixture of some of those. Some of those they believe, some of those they don't, or maybe they have a better reasoning for them. And they, they can explain them a little bit more. There are some Christians who emphasize unity over all things, so much so that if truth comes in to disagree with people, they would choose unity rather than truth. So they'll go along with anything and everything just as long as there is unity. Other people are so staunchly committed to the truth that it doesn't matter who believes anything else. We're going to stand together with what we believe and all the people that believe that with us. We're going to create a holy huddle and that's where we're going to stay because that's where we're going to be safe. So they separate themselves from anyone whose doctrine or behavior may not measure up to their standard. You see, when we know the truth, which is what we have been going through over the past few weeks, when we understand what the truth is, we understand where it comes from, what our source is, and how to discern what is actually truth and error, then without a doubt, we will come into conflict with somebody. There will be disagreements in our lives. We will find ourselves debating what we believe. Some of us will feel like we need to speak up in a very vocal way. Some may feel very hesitant to say anything that would disagree with others. But there are gonna be things that we will have to know because we will be confronted with them. There are some issues that you're gonna confront in your life that are gonna be so important, so crucial to the faith that if people don't believe them, then it's just to say that they're probably not Christians at all. For example, if someone believes that there is no such thing as the Trinity, that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe someone will disagree with the fact that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, was buried, rose again, and is returning. If they don't believe that, we can correctly say that maybe you are not a follower of Jesus, or maybe 
we don't believe, some people don't believe in the coming of Christ or the last judgment or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there are going to be some other issues that are going to come up in your life. Now, those ones are easy for us to defend. And we can say, yes, that is truth. And we can go toe-to-toe and really die on those hills. But there are other things that are going to come up that we are going to be less likely to die for, more than likely to defend or disagree about. For example, baptism. There are going to be times that you will confront people that are that believe that believers have to be baptized alone. Or some will believe that babies or infants can be baptized. Or some believe both of those things are true. Some people think that you can be sprinkled or doused. Or some people think that you have to be baptized in a lake or a stream or at the beach or in some special sterile bath pool that we have hiding underneath the stage. It's not actually true. We don't have that. Some people disagree over spiritual gifts, like whether or not they are still for today, or if they are only for the first century, or maybe they were there for the first century, went away, and now they're back. Or some gifts are for today, and some gifts are not for for today. You can disagree about that. Or eschatology, the study of of last things, what's going to happen at the end of time? Do you believe in the rapture? And if you do, do you believe it's going to be at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end of the tribulation? if you believe in the tribulation at all. Or maybe you don't believe that there's going to be a millennium, but if there's a millennium, is there going to be, uh, do you believe in premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennial? Do you see where I'm going with this? Like so many different ways that you can disagree with those things. Or maybe when it comes to creation, some people believe in a six-day, literal six-day creation. Some people believe in a special creationism. Some people are theistic evolutionists. Some people believe that the earth is old. Some believe that the earth is young. Those are issues that we're going to discuss. Worship. Are you more of the happy clappy or the smells and bells kind of people? Where do you find yourself? Do you like chairs or pews or neither? Do you like to sit on the floor? Or do you like dancing or do you like it being quiet? Do you like an organ and piano or do you like a full band? We will come in conflict with people continually over things like this. But then there are other issues that we are going to come in conflict with. These ones we have good discussions about. But what happens when the stakes get raised even higher and we start wrestling with people about racial inequality or about equal rights or about homosexuality or transgenderism or about therapeutic cloning or euthanasia or withdrawal of treatment or alternative medicine, welfare, gun control, Palestinian oppression, anti-Semitism, war and passivity, public versus private versus homeschool, the use of alcohol or medical marijuana, and a thousand other hot-button topics. It's just a microcosm of the myriad of situations that we are going to find ourselves in in this world. And if we're following Jesus, if we're looking for truth, and we hold the truth, there will be people that will disagree with that truth in your life. How do you go about disagreeing with them? How do you go about accurately portraying your viewpoint in a way that can be received well by other people that are hearing you? I think that entering into moments like that of disagreement and debate is healthy for us. It's important for us. It's one of the ways that God uses to help grow and nurture our faith. But very often, we can tend to look at those as opportunities to advance our position or to look down on somebody who holds a different view or to shame them or to speak to them in an angry fashion. What I want to propose to you today is how we communicate the truth, how we disagree and debate is just as important as what we are disagreeing and debating about. In fact, that's the big idea for today, is this. We can know and defend the truth, but with humility, patience, and tolerance. We can know and defend the truth with humility, patience, and tolerance. Those are the three driving principles that I really want us to capture. That's so important for us as we enter and engage with people over different topics that we have, we have to have as our driving principles humility, patience, and tolerance. When I talk about humility, I'm saying recognize that in a world full of deep differences about fundamental issues, Christians and non-Christians are like, 
we are not always able to prove why we are right and the other person is wrong. As followers of Jesus, we are able to experience humility in public life because we recognize there's a limit to our human understanding and reason, including our own. But because we know that we have been saved by faith, not by our moral goodness, not by our actions, we can rest in the fact that if any change is gonna occur, it's gonna come because of what God is doing at work in the life of the person. And that allows us to be patient with them, which encourages listening, understanding, and questioning. Patience with others may not always bridge these ideological differences that we may have. We are unlikely to find agreement on most of the things that are most important to us. But careful listening and sympathetic understanding and thoughtful questioning can help us to draw closer to others as we come to recognize the shared experiences that we have, as well as the experiences that tend to divide us. We can be patient with others because we have hope in a story whose end is already known. And we can be tolerant. Tolerance is a a practical enduring of beliefs and practices that we do not share. This does not mean acceptance of other people's viewpoints or beliefs or behaviors. Tolerance is not the same thing as as acceptance, and that's important for us to understand. We're not approving those practices. In fact, if we demand acceptance from everybody, nobody will have anything that they can stand for. It's impossible to do that. But as we get to know other people, we can see that every one of us holds views about important matters whether or not we think the other is misguided or not. There's no way that any of us can embrace all these things, but we can do the hard work of distinguishing people from their ideas. Pursuing relationships with people that are created in God's image, even while we're recognizing that we may not approve of their beliefs and actions all the time. It's important for us to have humility, patience, and tolerance as we go about this. And as we do this, it flows out of our love for God and is grounded in the truth of the gospel. Those are the principles that are gonna drive us. The practices that are gonna help us as we engage with people are these. Our posture in disagreement really matters. The way that we enter it really matters. The purpose of our disagreement matters. The persuasion around our disagreement matters, and the perspective around our disagreement really matters. We're going to find out how this all plays in with how Peter approached it in his letter, and uh, we're going to dive into that. But let me pray really quick, and then we'll get into what God's Word says. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about truth. Help and guide us as we discuss this today. May your words be heard, and may we find ourselves listening and applying them to our daily lives, we ask in your name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3 says this. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Uh, Peter is talking to a group of Christians who are in the midst of a, of a hostile city, hostile world. And he's writing to them to encourage them on a correct way of living, holding fast to truth, the gospel, but also living a life that exemplifies following Christ. This is what a follower of Christ is like, even in the midst of a difficult situation, a hostile world. Now, it's not the worst persecution. Nero is gonna come a little bit later and he's gonna magnify persecution in a big way. But even at this moment, Christians were being nailed for their faith. There was consequences for them standing out as followers of Jesus. And what Peter says is so important for them and also for us because we live in a very similar type of world. Starting in verse 13 and reading to verse 17, this is what Peter tells us. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Paul had a very similar uh, statement that he made to the, the people that he was writing to in Ephesus when he wrote this, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Peter and Paul both emphasize the same thing, this good, this good behavior while interacting with others in disagreeing ways. These terms, gentleness, respect, humility, patience, tolerance, they de- definitely and clearly and overwhelmingly communicate to us that our posture in disagreement and debate matters. Our posture in disagreement really matters. I love what Tom Lynn, he's the president of InterVarsity Fellowship. It's an organization that ministers to campuses around the world. He relates doing this, engaging with people in debate and discussion in, in a world that's full of different viewpoints and worldviews, as going to a different country and experiencing a different culture. Here's what he has to say. We need to pay careful attention to our entry posture the mindset from which we approach our new location or a changing culture. We can choose to be suspicious, critical, prejudiced, and closed, or we can be open, accepting, trusting, and adaptable. Our entry posture influences how we'll respond when we experience the inevitable frustration and dissonance that new situations present. And it predicts how we will emerge from the encounter whether we'll experience alienation and broken relationships or deeper understanding in enduring relationships. What he's saying is, as you approach a debatable topic with another person, how we enter into that discussion and debate really matters because it can set the tone for everything that will follow. If we have a good posture going in, being questioning, open to hearing and listening to what the other person has to say, that will go much further to us understanding what they're actually saying, where they're coming from, and open up a door to share what we actually believe and what we would like to say. And at the end of it all, provide an opportunity for us to have the continued relationship with them without burning the bridges, ruining a friendship or a relationship. How we enter in debate and discussion really matters. I'll never forget it. When I first started seminary uh, quite a long time ago, now it seems, uh, when I got to the seminary, I had come from a background that leaned very heavily on it was man's free will. His choice, it was ultimately up to human beings whether or not they would eventually be saved, that God was just waiting to see who would respond to salvation. The seminary I went to had a very much different view of that, a much more reformed view where God was sovereign in the act of salvation, where he predestined and foreordained people to believe and brought them into faith with himself. So I was wrestling with all this in the classes that I was taking, and I got into a conversation with with somebody who held tightly to the Reformed view. And I was coming from this other view. All that he did was blast me for how wrong I was, how stupid my ideas were, how it could be logically impossible for me to believe something like this. I'm telling you, from that moment, it shut me down. I was not going to listen to a single word that he had to say, and I was not convinced by what he was going to tell me next because how he was approaching the conversation completely shut me down. It wasn't until much later that I I had a friend who said, hey, let's just study God's word together and let's see what we find out. And if God is leading you one way or the other, that's great. We're just gonna talk it through. That made so much more sense to me and opened my eyes to see a different way of discussing this. You see, if we engage in disagreement with somebody else, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, if we have this folded arm, you know, terse look and cross leg type of mentality, we're going to shut people down. If they, if they get a sense that all we're doing is waiting for our moment to talk and to share our ideas to convince them why they are wrong, they will not listen to a single word that we have to say. But if we don't, 
everything changes. Let me, let me back up just a second. If you feel like you're entering in a situation like that, you're getting into this debate and this disagreement with somebody and, and you feel your, your blood pressure rising, and you, your, your face is getting a little bit red, you're getting heated, you're wanting to, to really react, start asking yourself some questions that are really important. Why am I uncomfortable in this moment? Why am I reacting the way that I am? What can I do about it? Am I reacting to this person or to the ideas and beliefs that they have? How am I communicating to them by my actions and my body language? Is there anything that I need to do in response to what my body is telling me? Asking ourselves questions, why am I feeling this way? Why am I so worked up in this moment that I can't communicate clearly or listen to what they have to say? How we engage in people is so important with our posture, our body language, the way that we come across. I still remember reading about a debate that happened at Chicago Theological Seminary. This was back in the 1960s. If you remember that time frame, Time came out, uh, Time Magazine came out with the whole God is dead article, and it just set, sent a wave of things going throughout all of Christendom. Christians were debating with atheists all the time. Well, they had a debate on this campus, Chicago Theological Seminary. They brought in one of the leading proponents of the God is Dead movement and one of their own theologians, and they had a debate. And in that debate, clearly, the, the theologian won. He had far better arguments. He had far better truth and was able to be convincing that this is true, that God is real. He is not dead. But what, while he may have won in words, he lost the debate in actions. Because while the person who, who came from the God is dead movement, he was very kind and welcoming and open. He had this open spirit as he was dialoguing. The theologian, on the other hand, was critical, negative, unkind, and sarcastic in the way that he gave his presentation. He fought and attacked and condemned. His actions loudly contradicted the truth that he was verbalizing. Listen, you might have all the right words to say to somebody. You might have the right truth. But if your actions are not correct, if you are coming across in a very belligerent, angry manner, it does not matter what you have to say. Someone once said, I can't hear your words because your life is speaking too loudly. I can't hear your words because your life is speaking too loudly. We should have this mentality, if there's ever gonna be offense to be taken, let it be taken over the truth, over the gospel, not over us, not over how we're communicating or presenting ourselves to other people. Both Paul and Peter are adamant in charging Christians, watch your conduct. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you're coming across. Let your defense be there, but do it with gentleness and respect and humility and tolerance. It's foundational in disagreement, debate, and conflict because it will be the only way for the person you're disagreeing with to hear you, to understand you, and possibly change as a result of your conversation. But that means just you're going to have to get around people. You're going to have to get in their, in their realm of life, their environment. Proximity is so important. You can't just hide behind a computer screen and start typing things out, responses. You can't hashtag your way to convince people the truth. You have to be engaging with people. I love Pastor Keith and talking with him and hearing his vision and mission for the church. When he comes at it, he is so firm. He says, on these trips that we are taking, I want, all I want to do is get our people around those who don't know Jesus. Because I know that God is going to take over, the Holy Spirit is going to do something and work something out through that. It'll be far more important, far more meaningful, and far more effective and enduring. I just want to get people around and let God work. That's what we have to do. We have to be around people, have a welcoming, open posture to disagree with people, build relationships with them, talk with them, hear what they're saying, and communicate what we believe is true face-to-face -face with others is so important. It allows us to go past what we may have heard about what other people think and believe and actually listen to what they actually think and believe. 
when we do that, we'll find that we have much more in common than we actually thought, and they will get to know us just as well. We have to have this posture, good body language as we're going in to debate people, but we also have, have the right mentality as we're going in to understand where they're coming from. Why are they believing what they believe? Why are they saying and communicating it in that way? Why do they hold that belief? You know, we are members of, of families, we're employers or employees of businesses and citizens of countries that hold beliefs that are constantly and continually sub-Christian. And when those differences, they are unjust and evil, we should definitely separate ourselves from them. But there are far more opportunities for us to come together with people and identify common ground and draw lines as sparingly as possible. We should try as often as possible to affirm what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, wherever we see it, even if it's emerging from sources that we might otherwise disagree with. This posture comes through this. When you're engaging with somebody, as we talk with somebody and we walk into that moment without our arms crossed, welcoming debate and disagreement, welcoming conversation, hearing what they have to say, trying to understand it, we can start asking ourselves these questions. What might God be doing in this situation? In this conversation I'm having, what might God be up to? What struggles does this person have that I might be able to empathize with? What bridges can we build together? What is God trying to teach, show, and grow me in? Yeah, we can know when we should know and defend the truth, but our posture has to be filled with humility and patience and tolerance. Humility, knowing that we don't have all the answers. We can often be wrong, and only God can reveal absolute truth. Patience, knowing that getting to know, to know someone and building that relationship where we both can be heard and understood takes time and tolerance, understanding that people are different than us, and they may not ever come to understand what we think or believe, but the relationship is important to continue so that one day they might. So that's the posture. Let me move on to the next one. It's the purpose of our disagreeing, and that matters a lot too. In our passage, Peter states that those who disagree with us often attempt to intimidate believers to change their beliefs or their behaviors. That word that Peter says, uh, do not be afraid, have no fear of them. Have no fear of the people that are there disagreeing with you, that are slandering you, that are talking bad about you. Don't be afraid of them. That word fear is this sense that comes up, this fear of, I got to run away. And a lot of times people today, especially back in 2020 in the whole cancel culture, people were trying to intimidate others to make a change in their beliefs and their behavior. That's that intimidation. And Peter says, don't fall for it. Stand your ground. Stand up to that. Don't be afraid. That terror that causes you to want to flee. Don't allow it to happen. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happens, right? We tend to fall in two extremes when we are disagreeing and debating with somebody. So a debate comes up. Somebody has a differing opinion than you. Could be on something that's really, really important. We have two extremes that we tend to fluctuate between or some of us lean closer to one or the other. Uh, one is, I am right. I hold this truth to be so important, and I'm right. I've done all the research. I know it. And you say, I'm going to win this argument. Then there's the other side, the other extreme, and people are, are, are like, uh, I don't want to say anything. I can't say anything because I don't know what they're going to think of me if I say it. If I disagree and I say these things, they'll know where I stand. And that could impact my friendships, could impact my relationships, could impact my work status, could impact all these things. So, you know what? I'm just, I'm just not going to say anything. Neither one of those extremes are the right place to be. Neither one of those places are where Peter says we should be. Peter says we should engage people in disagreement and conflict. But what's the purpose? The purpose is to help bring people to the truth, the truth, the truth of the gospel. It's the same approach that Paul had when he wrote this in 1 Corinthians, even though I am free, a free man with no master, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can 
bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share the weaknesses. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. God has called us to be a herald, a communicator of the good news of Jesus Christ to other people. And being a herald will sometimes mean that we need to speak hard truths, eternal truths, truths that do not change based on our time or our culture. There will be times that we will have to speak up about something that is difficult but true. But we cannot simply speak uncomfortable truths just to be right or just to win an argument, or just to be pleased with ourselves over how we communicate it. The goal is to communicate others with a human vision or a a compelling vision of human flourishing. This is what life with God is like. And we need to present it so great that people will say, man, that's something I want. How we come across is very important. When we come through, our purpose has to be to get people to understand what life with God could be like and why it's so much better. On the other extreme, it's just as important that we're not afraid of the cultural or the political or the spiritual pushback we'll receive if we disagree. The Christians he is writing to are in danger of real persecution physical aggression by those who disagreed with the Christian faith. Not to mention, many of them were in work situations where they could have been uh, completely ruined financially or vocationally. Yet he says, it's better to suffer for doing good, for speaking the truth about the hope that's within us, and trust God if that's his will. Friends, when we get into disagreement and you get this temptation to not say something, to be quiet, Don't fall for that trap. Speak the truth in love with gentleness, humility, respect, patience, and tolerance. But speak the truth. Don't hide from it. Trust God. That's what he's saying. And trust yourself to God. God is able to take care of you. He's able to hold on to you. He's able to make all these things right. He's able to care for you if things go south. And even if people come at you and are angry and and they speak all kinds of vitriol against you, don't, don't worry about it. You're not doing this because it's easy. You're doing it because it's right. You're doing it because this is what God calls you to do. The goal of this, the goal of this is to help the gospel be spread. The goal is building relationships with people where we can talk about thoughts and beliefs that matter most in a way that's humble, patient, and demonstrates tolerance. Not acceptance, tolerance. All this is great, so we have to have a good posture. How we come across in disagreeing and debating people is so important. Our purpose cannot be to win an argument or to flee from an argument, but to engage in arguments so that we can draw people to Christ. And that's where we have to spend a little time too to think, think through, how do we do this? Our persuasion is just as important. We have the good posture, we have the good purpose. Now we need the right persuasion. What we know is very important. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. And Peter in our passage says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That word for defense is is an argument that's placed before a judge. It's a rational argument. It's not an excuse. It's a rational argument used to convince somebody. When when Peter's using this word, he's using it to communicate defending in a great and rational way. It's kind of how Paul did it. Paul used the same way when he was debating and giving a defense for his faith in Acts chapter 25 and 26 to give reasons for what we believe and why. But let me give you another, another analogy or metaphor. 
I think that a lot of times what we need to consider ourselves as, as a translator. If you're familiar with a translator, they take what is uh, another person's language and communicate it into a second person's language. Oftentimes, there's a lot of things that don't get communicated correctly. But as Christians, what we're supposed to do is take the messages from God, the understanding of who he is, his plans for this world, his plans for individuals, and communicate it in a way that sounds right to people, in a way that they would understand. We can't just use Christian language. We can't just use words that we would understand in a church context. We need to use words and actions and metaphors in ways that they would understand to give a good reason, a rationale for what we believe and why. And this is so important. We have to know what we believe. We have to know why we believe it. How it's transformed our lives so that we can communicate that to other people as well. Because if you don't know the truth, if you say, this is great, I'm gonna engage in a debate and a disagreement with somebody, but I don't really know the facts, I don't know really what I'm thinking or believing myself, then you're gonna be so uncomfortable and overwhelmed in that situation. In fact, many people start to doubt their salvation because when they are confronted about what they believe by someone who really knows the, the, the facts well, they get overwhelmed by that. And they lose ground and they start to doubt their own relationships with God. Christians who cannot present a biblically clear explanation of their faith will be insecure when strongly challenged by unbelievers. I want to say that this is coming. Uh, I read an article by a man named Miklas Yako. Uh, he was a, a former Christian who, after reading a lot of Christian apologists and theologians and atheists, decided to deny his faith and became an agnostic. But more than that, he wrote an article for uh, the atheist organization, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and he talked to them to say, if you are going to defend atheism against a Christian, this is how you do it. And he started going through different reasons that they could use, different things that they can use to combat Christians, using the Bible and apologetic resources and commentaries, using things that we would use the same way. But he goes through and he says, hey, when you come into a Christian, you, you need to de debate them. You need to disagree with them. And here's how you do it. If they are doing that, if they are learning the things like that to debate with other Christians, we should understand what we believe and why so that we can present a good argument for why we believe what we believe. And it's just gonna take some time. A friend of mine, we did that one summer. We had been in conversations over and over with people that believed uh, different ways about spiritual gifts. And we were confused and we thought, instead of just trying to shoot from the hip and not knowing, let's just figure it out for ourselves. We spent an entire summer studying spiritual gifts Every different viewpoint we could find, we studied it all out so that we knew where they were coming from, why they were coming from that position, and so that we could be better understanding of our position as well as how to debate and disagree with others. It was an incredible summer. Totally changed everything about me, uh, the way that we did it and what we discovered. I loved it. That's what we need to do. Find the truth, discover it, read it, Know it so that when disagreement comes, we're able to communicate with others what we believe and why. And then we'll be less likely to run from disagreement. We'll be more confident in engaging with others who believe differently than us. Last is this, our perspective. Our perspective in disagreement matters. Keeping the right view of how this is going to play out is really important. Uh, I have a lot of places that I can go with this, but I'm going to try to keep it brief just for time's sake. Uh, we live in an earthly world, but we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and those are constantly at odds with each other, constantly at odds, where what we believe and what we know to be the end of the story constantly conflicts with what people in this world who don't have that hope think and believe. So how do we live how do we live in a society that is sometimes hostile to us, sometimes uh, very angry and belligerent towards followers of Jesus? How do we live in that way? We need to have this perspective as a genuine follower of Jesus 
who has been left here in the world, but not to be of the world, we should faithfully and actively contribute the societies that we are a part of. As we do that, we need to contribute to the good of all people, not just of Christians, but what is best for all the people in the society that we are living in. We need to remember that this earthly city, it never will be what the heavenly city is meant to be until Christ returns. We need to remember that the differences between these two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, it limits our expectations for what can be accomplished. Because in this earthly city, everyone just wants power and domination. In the heavenly city, it's all about love and humility and grace and truth. And that's where our hope lies. Our hope lies is not in what we can accomplish here on the earth, but in Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is ruling and he's reigning now, and he will come again to usher in the full peace and justice, which is what we're longing for. Until then, until then, we as followers of Jesus need to live as salt and light. Salt is so important. Salt in the Old Testament in the New Testament times was used for a number of different things, uh, two of which were uh, to add seasoning to things. We should do that as Christians, to add seasoning to life, joy to life, uh, experience to life, but also to prevent decay, which is what Christians do, to hold back the darkness. But also, there's a study that came out about uh, salt used as fertilizer down in the Philippines. They found out that uh, farmers who used salt as fertilizer in their coconut trees uh, got 125% growth in their coconuts uh, over those who did not. What he was saying is this, salt needs to be fertilizer. And if we are salt for this earth, not only are we gonna add seasoning to this world, not only are we gonna prevent decay in this world, but we're gonna be fertilizer to this world. That means we get thrown onto the manure piles of all the junk that's going on in this world and we are to bring up new life through it. That we engage people to show them what life can really be like, what life in God truly means, what it can be. So we should not run from disagreement. We should not hide away from those who disagree with us. We should engage them with good posture, with the right purpose, with persuasion of what we believe and why in the perspective that one day Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make everything right again. So I don't have to be afraid of what's gonna happen to me. I don't have to be responsible for what's gonna happen with my words. I need to just trust that Jesus is gonna do this himself. He's gonna make things right. So then, as you enter and engage with people in disagreement and debate, I want you to remember this one thing. We are not responsible to change people. God is. We are not responsible to change people. God is. We are not the heroes of the culture. We are not the ones that are gonna come and with our pithy arguments and, and great little snippets on social media, we're not gonna change the culture God will change the culture. He is the one who will usher in his kingdom. So by the grace of God, we can be patient because we take the long perspective knowing that Christ is, always has been, and always will be the Lord of lords through any political reality that we face. We can be humble because we are members of God's family. We know that we are entirely dependent on the grace of God extended to us in Christ with which we use to love others. And we can tolerate those with whom we profoundly disagree because the love we have in Christ does not insist on its own way, but rather bears and endures all things as it waits for the day when we all see things clearly and fully. We can know and defend the truth with humility, patience, and tolerance. So friends, can I encourage you to do that? to take those steps. Here's a few action steps. Maybe you're here today and, and you are just blown away by this. What do I do first? I, I don't know what to do. First thing is this, study the truth. Know what you believe and why. Start with the gospel. Has God changed your life? And if he has, how did he change your life? Get to know who he is, what he's done for you through Christ. Get to know his word. That is the foundation that you need. Study that, then start to pray. Start to pray that God will use that to transform your life, but also to bring other people into your life that you can talk with and show them the truth. 
and then get in the game. Find some people that you can talk to and engage with that may believe or think differently than you. See, when it comes to knowing the truth, it's inevitable that we are going to disagree with others. We're going to find ourselves in situations where we feel the need to speak about what is true. There might be times when we have great conversations. There might be times when we're able to convince people we are disagreeing with. There might be times when we're met with aggression and even repercussion. What holds us fast is the confidence that no matter what we think and believe, what others think and believe, it is Jesus who will have the final word and will speak it in renewing and restoring the world as he intended it. I love how Tish Warren Harrison, sorry, I flipped that. Tish Harrison Warren puts it. She says, in this beloved and beautiful, wayward and weeping world, we bear witness to the word who will have the final glorious word. I love that. That's what gives us the confidence. That's the hope. That's the end of the story. And Jesus pointed to the end of that story on the night that he was betrayed. When he was gathering with his disciples and he was talking with them about what's going to happen over the next few hours and when he was going to be lifted up and put on the cross and die in our place for our sins and then one day rise again. He was sharing with them the truth that death is coming. He would one day or soon be taken from their midst. And they were filled with confusion and sadness. But Jesus said in that moment, words of hope, he took the cup, the cup that they were to drink, and he held it and he says, I will not drink this again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. What Jesus is doing is pointing forward to say, this is not the end reality. There's going to be a greater reality to come. When everything is made right, all the darkness becomes light. We will once again be gathered together and it will all be justice, love, and grace. So then when we celebrate communion together, we are testifying to the fact that Jesus is the truth. And that as the truth, he is the source of truth for our lives. He determines what is right and what is wrong, what is life and what is death, how to live for him and through him and in him. And he said that when he took the bread and he said, take and eat this bread. This is my body, which is broken for you. What he's saying is, I am now taking your place in your brokenness, in your humanity that has been corrupt since the beginning. I am restoring it to wholeness through my death on the cross. Let's take and eat this together. And after the manner, same manner, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, my new way of doing things with you. This is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. When we drink this, we are remembering his sacrifice poured out for us so that we could be given new, true life. Let's drink together. Jesus Christ is the truth the final truth, the final word, who will have the final word. Join me as we sing together.